Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. It's our prayer and also our present expectation that the living God will speak to us this morning out of James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. The title of the sermon is simply, How to Resist the Devil and Stay Right with God. How to Resist the Devil and Stay Right with God, out of James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And just before we read God's word, that song was a prayer, but uh, let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, and you hold in your hand the key of David, so that Jesus, you shut, and no one can open. And Lord Jesus, you open, and no one can shut. So Lord Jesus, in this very moment, open these hearts open these spirits, open these minds. Too long have they been shut in unbelief, in pride, in resistance. Lord Jesus, open these hearts so that you will receive the glory in your message preached. Amen. James chapter four, verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So it's certainly the case that most everybody submits to their own desires, their own feelings, their own wishings, and their own wantings, and just about everybody resists God and the limitations and the commandments that he's given us in his word. Just about everybody fights against submitting to God, and just about everybody goes along with the ways of the world. Let me just ask you this question. Is anything easier? I don't mean in a, in a long-term answer, but in a short-term answer. Is anything easier than submitting to your own feelings? Is anything easier than just Letting yourself get what you want. Not in the long term, but in the short term, nothing's easier than that. Let me ask you this. Is anything more common? Is anything more common than to float along the ways of the world just like everyone else is doing? That is what everyone else is doing. All of us as unrepentant sinners, we submit to our own desires and appetites and we resist God. But beloved, here in the church of the living God is the one place where we turn that around. And we have gathered to stop giving in to the devil and following the world, and we have gathered to submit 
ourselves to God. The church is the only place where that happens because the church is the household of the redeemed. We have been bought with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves. So submitting to God, isn't, is, it isn't even a choice. It's who we are because we were dead and he brought us back to life. When you are born again, you stop submitting to yourself, you stop submitting to your sin, and you stop submitting to this world and you follow Jesus. That's what it means. And so our text, beginning in verse 7, says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. How to resist the devil and stay right with God. So I see verse 7 as the basic play that this whole paragraph from 6 through 10 is talking about. These two parts, submitting to God and resisting the devil. This is the basic play that if the coach was going to write it on a chalkboard, I, I know contemporarily it would be a Microsoft tablet or something, but when I was playing, it was a chalkboard. The coach writing the play on the chalkboard, and the play is resist the devil, submit to God. And every other little phrase in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are the little steps that all the X's and the O's take to run that play. But the play is submit to God and resist the devil. And everybody submits to the devil and their own desires and this world, and almost nobody submits to God. But here in the church is the one place where that's turned around. So maybe even at the very outset, I could tell you this. Beleaguered believers, bruised and beat up believers, the more consecrated you are to God, the more you will be in conflict with this world and with the devil. I think this is very important to wake up to because it's a very, it's, I don't know why, but it's such a plausible error. We go around thinking if, um, you know, verse six says, God gives more grace. By grace, we've been saved through faith. It's such a common error for us to think, once grace enters my life, then the struggles will cease. I'll have peace. Everything will be easier and everything will be different. But the Bible insists that when grace enters your life, you are finally enlivened through regeneration to begin resisting this world and your own flesh and the devil. James, the entire rest of the New Testament, teaches nothing of some, I don't know why we do this to ourselves. Like we go to a camp or we have some big meeting and we expect like this one great act of consecration to God's grace will cause conflict to cease. There's no Bible verse that says that. In fact, I could marshal every text that says the closer you get to Christ and the more God's grace is operative in your life, the more ferocious your conflict will be with the world and the flesh and the devil. Why would the devil waste his venom on those who wholly and completely belong to him? It's the born again who suffer this battle. And it is a battle. 
So be encouraged, Christian, if you, are, if you are fighting against your own flesh and against this world and against the devil, this is evidence of God's grace in your life. It's the believers who never are in the fight that are the ones that I'm the most worried about. And it's the believers who never confess their sin, honestly, that I'm the most worried about. To make, to make this as simple as possible, today, if you came here to church and right after ABF or in between services or after this service, you grab a spiritual leader and you confess to them some shameful sin that you've been doing, you confess that to them. This is the whole reason that we're here this means the church is working. This is a good thing. Of course, it's not a good thing that we're still stumbling into shameful sins, but this is the one place where we stop submitting to the world and our own flesh, and we resist that, and we submit to God. This is the expectation here that we would confess our sin and that we would confess how, how difficult the struggle is. It's the nominal Christians, and nominal means in name. They might not even have it in reality. It's the nominal Christian who never confesses sin and never confesses her or his struggle that I am most concerned about. The, the church is the place where we stop resisting God and instead we submit to him and we stop submitting to our sin and instead we confess it. This is our expectation. So show me a church where it's weird and kind of gross and kind of, why would they do that to confess sin? Show me a church where it's weird to confess sin. That is, the Bible says, not a church. It is a collection of Pharisees. The church is where this is expected. Where this is expected. And so our text says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee to you. Starting in verse seven, submit yourselves. I can't get past the first word. Sorry, submit, submit. I can't get past it because any verse with the word submit in it is not gonna get the hearts and the smiley faces on Facebook as everybody's favorite verse. We pick a verse that says, God's plans for you are for you to always have everything you've ever wanted and unicorns and rainbows, and that gets all the smiley faces. But did you know there are one, two, there are, there are dozens and dozens of verses in the Bible that say that we are to submit, and every one of them should be our favorite verse. These are great verses. The Bible says, not in a demeaning way, but the Bible says in a beautiful way, in 1 Peter 3, in Ephesians 5, in 1 Timothy 2, that Christian wives submit to their husbands. We don't turn the volume down on that verse. That is a good, healthy, even romance-blossoming kind of verse. It's good for us to, to, to appreciate that verse. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, that Christian citizens submit to the governing authorities up until the point where they require us to sin or where they forbid us from doing that which God has commanded us to do. These are good verses. We live in a day when we, our culture 
even our elected representatives, can't even submit to the fact that God made the sun and the moon. He made the water and the dry land. He made the man and the woman. And those are two different things. There's a reality that outranks and predates us. And it is our blessing, our benediction, and our joy to submit to that reality. The, the biblical definition of a fool is someone who refuses to submit to that reality. The biblical definition of a wise woman or a wise man is a submissive woman or a submissive man to the reality that God has spoken into existence. That's what this means. It is wonderful for us to submit. And so we have gathered to submit ourselves to God. So church, I hope you, you watch out for anything in the preaching of the church from when I lead from this pulpit or when Brennan leads us in singing. I hope, you, I, I hope if you hear anything that's like, oh, the reason we've gathered is because uh, God owes us to, to, to make everything the way that we want it. We have gathered because we owe our very lives and every, every blood vessel to God. And so everything in the church is centered around God and his glory. The goal of life and ministry is that God would be glorified. And, and part of the miracle of conversion, part of the spirit-given miracle of conversion is that once I am born again, I finally become a person who realizes that for God to be glorified is for me to find my greatest joy and my greatest fulfillment. It's not for God to... to click out his pen and write down everything I want him to do, but it is for him to be glorified. That's where real life is. Church, submit to God. Oh, for a church of submissive persons. I'll tell you this, church. I'll tell you this. It doesn't take great men and women to do great things for God. What it takes is submitted men and women to do great things for God. Great men and women can do things that the world calls great all day long. But the things that God calls great aren't even the things that the world calls great. And those are the things that we want to do. And what it takes to do those things is not power of personality or greatness. What it takes is submission. Submission to God. And you know, submission to God, self-denial is the way of lasting happiness. How often? Did our Savior try to teach us? He says, take up your cross. He says, deny yourself. He says, take up your cross daily. And every time he tells us this, he's trying, he's trying to get us to see. Because what does he say? The one who comes after me, who takes up his cross and follows me, where I am, there shall he be also. The only pathway to eternal joy is the pathway of self-denial and following Jesus. Christian author C.S. Lewis has these, he writes a book about how these demons talk. Screwtape is one of the demons. And somewhere in that book, Screwtape the demon says something like this. When God instructs those humans to deny themselves, God only means for them to abandon the dangerous clamor of their stupid self-will. And the trick is, once they have done that, God really gives them back all that they could have desired. 
I think that's just about right. I think that's just about right. Self-denial is letting go of my self-will and embracing God's glory and God's revelation so that then everything moves where it's supposed to. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submission is the only way, but it is the way. Beloved, the soul that abandons itself to God will never be abandoned by God. But the soul that tries to give God a little bit but holds back most of it has no assurance of the ongoing presence and favor and protection of Almighty God. Jesus said, come after me by denying yourself. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission to God is resistance to the devil. And submission to God is not some sort of peaceful, all conflict is gone. The more godly you are, the more submitted to God you are, the more resistance against the world, the flesh, and the devil will be operative in your life. Resist the devil. Peter's passage here is parallel. The very next book of the New Testament is 1 Peter. And 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10 is a parallel passage. James and Peter really were singing off the same song sheet because the humility, submission, uh, resistance of the devil is all the same. Listen to how similar this sounds. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's passage, that the devil is like a roaring lion, but we can resist him. James' promise in chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil can be successfully resisted because the devil has been defeated by our Lord Christ. In his temptation, even before his cross, Jesus resisted and conquered the devil. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 in his temptation. And then as, he, as his hour was approaching in John's gospel, Jesus says in John chapter 12, I will be lifted up and Satan will be cast down. Jesus defeated the devil at the cross. This, come to think of it, this last Wednesday night was, was the most fun I've had on a Wednesday night in a long time. I Dan and the youth staff invited me to join the middle school and high school ministry, and I did a question and answer with them. I, they, they probably asked me, I don't know, 30, 40 questions in the, in the course of that time. And one of the questions that they asked me was, where was Jesus after he died on the cross? Like, did he go to hell or what? And the answer to that question, I'm okay with you saying that after he died on the cross, Jesus descended to hell, but just be sure you understand, he descended to hell 
as a victor to take captivity captive. He did not descend to hell as a prisoner. That's what Ephesians 4 says. That he who, is, he who fills all things, he ascended, he descended into the realm of the dead to take captivity captive and as a mighty conquering general to lead in his train all those whom he had conquered. Same thing Colossians 1 says, that, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities having publicly and openly put them to shame. I can't help but think of these like, you know, cop shows where a bad guy has a gun and some strong police officer just knocks him upside the head with his own gun and takes his gun from him. Colossians 1 says, Jesus didn't disarm Satan in some like mousy, private, in my heart kind of way. It says that he openly put him to shame when he defeated him on the cross. And all of this to say, to lead us to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. Our mighty champion who led captivity captive, one of the things that he did is he forged for us armor so that his victory now becomes ours. And that's the armor that we wear in his power and in his might. Don't, don't underestimate how defeated the devil is. You know the old story about the, the assistant football coach and the head football coach, and the head football coach is trying to teach his assistant how to pick the right guys for the team. And so there's a guy that he gets hit hard one time and he gets knocked down and he doesn't get back up. And the assistant coach says, well, of course, you're not going to pick that guy for your team. Then there are other players that get hit two or three times, but then they can't get back up. And the assistant coach says, well, of course, you don't want those guys for your team. Then they find a guy who is hit five, six, seven, eight times hard in the course of the game, but he still manages to get up. And the assistant coach says, well, that's the kind of guys we pick for our team, right? And the head coach says, no. The guys that I want on my team are the guys that are knocking everybody down. <laughs> this, don't mistake what this is saying. This is not a promise that now you can knock the devil down and you can do all of these things. Jesus Christ knocked the devil down at Golgotha. And now if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, the devil cannot make you do anything if you are in Christ. Your willingness to defy Christ or to deny Christ then will enable you to follow the devil's way temporarily. Don't do that. Consecrate yourself. Give all of your loyalty to Jesus. And he died for you. Now you give all of your submission, all of your consecration to him. And then in Jesus, you can't get knocked over. That's what this is saying about the devil and his defeat. But to keep going, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In this fight against sin, what is it that we need the most? In this fight against the world, in this fight against floating along with my own feelings, what is it that we need the most? There's not a trick question. The obvious answer is meant to be the correct answer. In this fight, what is the one thing that we need the most? The answer is... God, God. And so James says, draw near to God. To resist the devil, 
to resist the flesh, to resist my own sin, I need communion with God. I need the assurance of God's presence. I need the empowerment of God's spirit. And so he says, draw near to God. What a thing to say. We could, we could know from systematic theology that God is omnipresent, and so we could make some argument that there is no space that is closer to God than any other space. James is not interested in such metaphysical certitudes. James is, what a, what a thing to say. James is saying to you, to people just like you, the Spirit of God is saying to you, you can, you yourself can draw near to God. What a gift. What a gift. Well, well, how do I do that? How do I draw near to God? You know, the New Testament answer isn't first and foremost um, have a quiet time. The, the, you, you go through the New Testament, the way the New Testament describes drawing near to God, the primary means of grace by which we draw near to God, you are doing it right now. Is corporate worship. It's sitting together with your brothers and sisters under the preaching of the word. It is lifting up your voice, even if your voice ain't that good, with your brothers and sisters praising the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world from Acts right through every epistle of the New Testament, even into the book of Revelation, the primary means of grace by which we draw near to God is the corporate assembly of the saints. The New Testament does also say that from house to house, we're in small groups where we keep each other accountable. And the New Testament does say that there's a place for a private and personal quiet time. But those are the second and third things beyond this primary means of grace. Notice how it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I'm, I'm not certain how important the order was to James, but let's just go with it that for some reason he said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This back to the quiet time thing, this enables, this is probably one of the easiest ways or the most helpful ways that I can answer one of the most frequent questions or complaints that you all come to me with. I say to you, you've got to have a quiet time. And so you do it. And then afterwards, you come back to me with a complaint. I had a quiet time, but it didn't work. I, I, I felt like I was praying to the, to the ceiling tiles. I read the Bible, but it didn't make any sense. It didn't help me. I tried to draw near to God and it didn't work. Switch the, switch the order of the verse around. What if it said, you will have this overwhelming experience of God drawing near to you and then you'll draw near to God. I don't want to depress you by this speculation, but just go with me on this. How easy would it be to have a quiet time every day if you had this overwhelming emotional experience of the nearness of God? He drew near to you emotionally just the way you wanted him to, and then you have your quiet time. Or how easy would regular church attendance be 
If, if you're, whatever your emotional or visceral feeling of what church is supposed to feel like, as soon as you walked in the door, you had that feeling. Then how easy would it be to attend all the time? But that's not what it says. What it says is submit to God, obey him, walk in the means that he has provided. There is not a promise that it will feel the way you want it to feel, but there is a promise that this is God's word and he keeps his promises. So keep drawing near to him. And if it doesn't feel like you wanted it to feel, it very well may be the case that what you thought it ought to feel like was more worldly in Hollywood than it was Leviticus and Romans anyway. There's no guarantee that it's going to feel the way that you want it to feel. But there is a guarantee that God honors his word and that God has commanded you to gather together with the saints. There's nothing like a decades-long commitment to stick to the means of grace. God will always come through in his time, in his time. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Second half of verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, we had to, or we chose to, uh, close the church right when COVID was brand new in that March, April, May, a year ago. And when we reopened uh, at the county's uh, request, we printed out these like posters about how to wash your hands and we put them in all the bathrooms and that's actually what this verse means. No, it isn't really. <laughs> This is talking about uh, Leviticus 16, the, the priestly cleansing. It's talking about Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place with God Almighty? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And it's interesting that James says dirty hands are from a double mind. Double-mindedness is a Huge deal for James. You could say it like this. If James is phobic of anything, if he's your pastor and he loves you, the one thing that he is afraid will get you is double-mindedness. In the Greek, di sukos, two-souled, to be divided in your soul, to be divided in your mind. James started that in James 1, verses 6 through 8, when he talked about prayer. Ask in faith, James 1, 6, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he's a double-minded, a two-souled person, unstable, he says, in all of his ways. For James, saying one thing and doing another is to have false faith, is to be double-minded. Saying one thing and doing it is living faith, true faith. Faith is the whole person, mind, spirit, heart, hands, feet, completely loyal to God, completely loyal to God. The, the disloyal are as unstable as a wave, but the solid-souled are loyal to God. Submit to God. My loyalty to God is unquestioned because all of my submission belongs to God. I don't have to be happy, but I have to submit to God. I don't, I, I don't have to work things out, 
but I have to submit to God. I don't have to be successful in this world. I don't have to maintain my liberty. I don't have to maintain my life, but I will submit to God. This whole soul loyalty to God is the only thing that makes faith living and enduring. And so he says, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Did you know that one of the best, one of the most intelligent ways that you can speak to yourself and one of the best self-understandings that you can have is for you in your heart to determine, I cannot trust my own heart. For you, in your mind, to realize, I am only a little, oh, I am only a little inner dialogue away from being double-minded. I am, and I'm supposedly the leader in this place. I am a little inner dialogue away from becoming double-minded. And Jesus, I don't want to be double-minded. So you're constantly saying, Jesus, save me from me. There's, a, there's an old prayer. I, I copied it years ago, and I've prayed it so long that it's mine, but I didn't write it. This old saint realizes how, how unreliable his or her own heart is. And so the prayer is, oh, God, come and take my heart. Oh, God, come and take my heart by your power. Because God, my heart is so selfish that I don't want to give it to you in my power. So God, come and take it. And oh God, once you have it, don't give it back. <laughs> oh God, once you have my heart, would you keep it from me? Because I'm so greedy and my appetites are so foolish that I will constantly try to steal my heart back. So God, keep it from me. Keep it for thyself. The wisest, most godly Christian trusts her own heart the least. The most foolish Christian thinks, I'm never going to be double-minded. I'm never going to struggle with my heart. And so we ask God to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Again, I'm not sure if how much James is trying to make a didactic point about the order, but just go with the order again. Verse 8, draw near to God and then cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. I, I just want to mention that I find it comforting that he doesn't say, clean yourself up and then draw near to God. And I think, beloved, the reason God says that is because the God who loves you know that, knows that you would never be able to clean yourself up without him, without him. So the first thing to do is always the first thing to do is to draw near to God. I can't even see the dirt that needs to be cleansed if the only light that comes is from my own eyes. It's the light of God's holiness that shows me what needs to be cleansed. 
So the command isn't, well, well, prune this and chop this off and clean this up, and then you can get close to God. God says, come to me, come to me. Jesus, when he was here, he ran to the sinners. He ran to the prostitutes. He just found them. He just found them, and he pulled them in. Draw near to God, and then God will do what it takes to cleanse you. And then hastening through the last verse, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We're going to save verse 10 till next week. So the verse we'll end on is be wretched and mourn and turn your joy to gloom. God bless you. The end. You're dismissed. What a great verse to end on. No. What is that? By the way, you, you just laughed. So if that verse means that Christians can't laugh, then you're just like the worst Christians I've ever seen. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean you can't laugh. What does it mean? Well, in context, he's talking about repentance. He's talking about the sorrow of repentance. He's talking about the hot tear that ran down the stubbly cheek of Peter in Mark 14 when he said, I denied Jesus how I wish I hadn't denied Jesus who has loved me so. It's the sorrow. It's the grief over sinning against Jesus. Church, I'd know this. It is only the heart that is truly broken over sin that Jesus comes down and puts back together. This is, this is the mark of those who belong to him is that they grieve over their sin. They're sorry about their sin. And so I'm asking you to repent of your sin and grieve over it. How many times have I asked you or commanded you to repent of your sin? Just this morning, let me make it very plain. I just want to knock down the hills that are in the way and sweep out the pathway and say, if you want to repent of your sin, this is how, okay? Very quick. Five steps to take. This is how you repent of your sin. Number one, own it. O-W-N, number one, own it. That is take responsibility because we know the first story about the first sin, what happened, right? Oh, it was the snake. It was this lady. It was this, it was that. All this blame shifting and finger pointing. So the first thing in repenting of sin is to own it. Secondly, secondly, name it, name it. And by this, I mean, this is a pet peeve of mine, but I hope it's not a personal pet peeve. I hope this is pastoral wisdom. I have had it up to here with renaming our sin with worldly labels. Enough of that. You, I want you to find the verse that describes your sin, and I want you to find it in the KJV, and I want you to call your sin by that name. If God says it is perverted wickedness, that's what it is. That's what it is. So let God name your sin by his word. We minimize our sin and we get so worldly about the ways that we talk about our sin or the way we excuse because, well, I was sinned against and that's what made me sin. No, you name your sin for what it is. Own it, name it. Number three, confess it. Confess it. To me, uh, I write out my confession. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying you have to save that. You know, you may want to shred it because you don't want your grandkids to realize what a corrupted 
creep you are. So you can burn it or shred it afterwards, but write it out. I take Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and I put my name in there and I write out my confession. Own it, name it, confess it. Number four, get God's word on it. Find and meditate on two passages about that sin. Get God's word on it. Find and meditate on two passages about that particular sin. And then number five, just like it, get God's people on it. That's the fifth and last step. Get God's people on it. This is what we're talking about. A church where no one confesses their sin to one another is a non-church. It's a collection of religious Pharisees and phonies. But if submitting to God means confessing our sin, then we confess our sin to one another all the time. James is going to say that in the next chapter. So get accountability. Tell a friend. Don't stay isolated. We need the help and the accountability that others give to us. Repent of your sin. These are the tears that James is talking about. There's a for unforgettable scene in the, I actually forget if it's Tolstoy or Dostoevsky in one of the great Russian novels where a, a, a thief or a sinner is in the court and he's weeping as his sentence is read against him. But the narrator explains, he's not weeping because of the guilt of his sin. He is weeping because he realizes that he will be incarcerated and he will no longer have the liberty to continue to commit his sin. Church, there is false repentance, there are crocodile tears, and there are the real tears of repentance. That's what James is driving at. This, this the only thing that gives reality to repentance isn't just that we see how horrible and ugly our sin is. You know what gives genuineness to my repentance as far as my repentance has been able to be genuine in my mediocre life is that I have seen the beauty of Jesus. That's what draws me out of my sin. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I hate my impurity. I'm sick of my impurity. But it's not just because I can list up a catalog of how nasty my impurity is. It is because I want to see God. And my impurity keeps me from seeing him. This is what it's all about. This is what my guy Thomas Chalmers said is the whole point of the preaching of the word. The one thing the minister must do is present Christ as altogether lovely. Because if Christ is altogether lovely, then everyone who sees Christ as such will experience within their bosom the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what drives repentance. That's what drives submission, is the joy of the beauty of Jesus. Draw near to him. So James 4, 6 through 10 gives you a lot to do. And let us never forget that it begins in verse 6. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. I love how this comes together. Grace, grace is not a push broom that treats you all as a bunch of pebbles and grace just shoves you all your way to heaven. Grace and then verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 have 10 imperatives. 
treating you as the very opposite of inanimate rocks, but as persons who have affections and appetites and intentions and thoughts, and all those are things that you have to work on. But it's only after the inbreaking of grace, and it is only by the heartbeat of grace. So revel in this for a moment. Even though the challenge is enormous and the devil is a defeated foe, but a foe nonetheless, and the world is so insidious in its operations, and your own flesh is hard to conquer, revel in this. There is more grace. There is more grace. There is more grace in the gospel of Jesus than there is wickedness in this world or than there is sin in you. Let's pray. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.